This is Eric Corey, and welcome to A Different Story with Eric Corey. So I'm working on my outreach now to listeners and asking that wherever you're getting this podcast, that you please take a moment to subscribe or to like or to do whatever it is you're supposed to do to let me know that you're out there and that you're checking out my stuff. You can also go to my newly minted website, a adifferentstorywithericorey.com, and drop me a note. I always appreciate a little constructive criticism. Or you can go there to check out what a state-of-the-art website is supposed to look like. My two designers are extraordinary people. This entire podcast adventure started in late 2019 with a chance meeting that I had with a talent agent in the entertainment field. And he told me that the next big thing is podcasts. Most specifically, he said, 15-minute podcasts. He said, have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and do it all in 15 minutes or less. Now, my field of study in college was telecommunications and journalism, but my skills were in construction and business management. And when I showed up in Southern California in 1978, well, the state was ripe for the taking construction-wise. And by 1988, I had earned my contractor's license, and I started my business. And business was good, very good at times. And it afforded me the opportunity to raise a family in the most luxurious way. But all that changed in March of 2020 when the world's governments panicked and they shut it all down. Now, right before that shutdown hit, I was poised to have, like, my best summer ever. I had four very profitable projects lined up to begin construction in April and May of that year. And then suddenly, like without warning, all four projects were all canceled for various reasons, but all COVID-related. And these were cancellations imposed by a government that gave little to no consideration for the downside damage and every consideration to the political hay to be made with this coronavirus outbreak. You understand that I only need to make like four or five sales a year to be profitable. And these sales, like these four jobs, well, they take months to develop and to negotiate usually like about six months on average from that first meeting with the owner to shovels in the ground. So when these projects were canceled, well, not only did I not have any work for the people whose families count on me for a paycheck every week, but my ability to earn money ceased in an instant. It all happened just a few days. There was no way to prepare for such an unprecedented act of government in, in modern times. No one saw it coming, and me, like hundreds of thousands of other business people just like me, were unable to earn a living overnight. And after all that digging and clawing and stress and persevering for like 30 years, it was the United States government that finally was the one to put me out of business. And I'm just one guy. Imagine the others, tens of millions of others, be it business people like myself or the worker whose shop closed down. We all suffered different degrees of financial disaster due to this act of government. Yes, I know it was a virus that threatened the lives of many people, and I also know that governments never make the right decisions, mostly because these decisions are driven by the opportunity for political gain and not out of some real concern for the impact these decisions would have later on, on the rest of us. All that compassion was just feigned. But that's all hindsight now. It's much easier to go back in history and imagine what we could have done differently. And now all that consternation and commiserating is just a waste of time and energy, just like the $6 trillion the government printed to throw at that problem. Which brings me to the point of all of this, and that is that we survived. We persevered and we adapted and we reconfigured. We've come out of it, and we now we find ourselves on the other side. And if you can't bear witness to the power of the people in this real-life example of our resilience in action and prove positive of our nation's strength, well, then you probably still have a fever. So anyway, there I was. It was the spring of 2020 with nothing to do and nowhere to go and no money coming in. And I remember the words of that random agent about podcasts. Now, I've always been a social commentator since 1984 when my first article was published. 
and I've run for public office a couple times, and I even had a book published. I've always had plenty of stuff to talk about. Now, for the first time, I had the time to do it, all thanks to an act of government. So I hung some blankets on the walls of my walk-in closet, and I started recording these 15-minute podcasts. A few years prior, I had reconnected with a childhood friend on the East Coast who just so happens to be an audio-video whiz kid who volunteered to help me with the technical side of this adventure. And so is the tale of A Different Story with Eric Corey. And now, four years later, Anthony and I were still at it, still digging deep into the experiences of my past and my unique interaction with the world around me and hoping to use that experience to provide guidance to a more prosperous future for us all. And I know a more prosperous future awaits us all as soon as we grow up. See, like me, I needed all those years of experience to grow up. At 18, I thought I knew it all. At 25, I was convinced of it. And at 30, I realized I never knew shit about shit. And I still don't. My favorite teacher taught me my favorite saying, and that is, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. But now I know a lot more of what I didn't know back then. And I have come to know what I know in a very unique way. You see, in the past 30 years, each and every day of my professional career as a general building contractor, I interact with people from every level of society. First thing in the morning, I meet with my labor crew. These are blue-collar working people who are digging ditches or hauling lumber or cleaning the job sites. I greet them with a firm handshake and tell them a joke or just something to make them smile. I just want them to feel my gratitude for their hard work. Then I move on to meet with the self-employed subcontractors that I hire to, to build my projects, a plumber, electrician, a roofer, whatever. These are always hardworking guys who run the road business and always have a lot of stuff going on. Now, I motivate them by the promise of prompt payment and more work if they get the work done on time, on budget, and in a professional manner. These guys are the kind of guys who also coach their kids' football or baseball teams after they get home from sweating on my job site all day. You know these guys, right? Big family guys, big house, big motorhome and a boat. People living a good life by working hard. And then I go on to meet with the owners of the clients, who are typically high net worth individuals, rich people. I mean, not always super rich people, but people who can afford to build a multi-million dollar custom home on the beach, or people who own and operate hotels, because I built both. Now, these rich folk, they fall into two different categories, mostly. There's the rich people who have worked very hard their entire lives to make all that money so they can build that dream home on the beach. And then there are those who didn't work hard at all and were just given all that money, known as the Lucky Sperm Club. They were born on third base, and they stand there acting like they just hit a triple. Two completely different birds living on the same money tree. Many have become my lifelong friends, and many I just wanted to choke out. And you can probably guess which is which. See, I'm the guy who sells these people the single largest purchase of their life, where I'm selling to people who are investing a lot of money in my ability to complete a project so they can generate revenue for themselves and their stockholders. It's not the easiest sale, and these are not dumb people. They're doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. And yes, I have built a house for a real Indian chief. They're also engineers and scientists and CEOs and CFOs and COOs. All highly intelligent people who need a special brand of coddling to get them to sign on the dotted line. And then I have to keep them happy for the next like 12 to 16 months of a very intimate relationship. It's not an easy task. So day after day, for nearly 30 years, this has been my life. I profit off my ability to inspire and motivate people from all walks of life, from every income level, across every culture and ethnicity. And I have to get them to do what I want and to make it feel like it's their idea and to do so genuinely, be it digging a ditch or pouring concrete or cutting me a six-figure personal check. 
What I sell is my ability to accomplish the job, be it building a house or remodeling a hotel. My income is results-based, and the results cannot be faked or half-assed or, or mailed in. See, the results of my work are lived in daily by the people who paid me. And if the stuff doesn't work, well, they all call me. It's been year after year of this indescribable level of responsibility that I bear. It never rests. And because of the number of people involved and the number of dollars in play, my job is a 24-7, 365 event if I hope to stay in business. There is no backup plan or someone to lean on when things get sideways, as they always do. It's just me. I'm the only one on my side of the ball with skin in the game. Now, this life has uniquely given me skills and ability and insights that I now wish to apply to the business of preserving this republic. And, and that's why I'm doing these podcasts. You see, many years ago, I read a Ben Franklin quote that has always stuck with me. Just after the creation of the new Constitution of the United States of America, a question was put to Dr. Franklin by a high society woman at some swanky affair to celebrate the creation of this new country. Well, doctor, she said, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? His response, it represents the underpinning of all that we hold dear. He said, a republic, if you can keep it. Now, those last five words, they drive my determination to not let Ben Franklin down. I find this as my duty as a beneficiary of all who came before me to set up the conditions for my success and prosperity. And now it's my time to pay that bill to preserve this republic for future generations to prosper, just as those Americans of the past had preserved it for me. The opportunity for this prosperity is made possible through the instructions as noted in this single document called the U.S. Constitution. That's the thing we're supposed to keep. And, and why wouldn't we? Its success has been felt worldwide and is unparalleled in the history of mankind for the technological advances that it has permitted and inspired. It has created the conditions for more prosperity than the world has ever known. And it is a testament to the genius of the creators, guys like Ben Franklin. That document was created with great foresight, based on historic trends and uniquely crafted to avoid the pitfalls of the past with these built-in mechanisms to preserve its tenets. But there is one thing, and only one thing, that this document requires above all else from the people who are bound to its dictates. And that one thing is participation in the process. Participation not by some of the people or half of the people, all of the people who fall under its control are duty-bound to secure its survival, to keep it. And if you're one of those people who take a pass every election or fail to engage in local affairs, well, then you're the person I hope to reach because you represent the majority. And if I can bring together that majority, we can use that power to, to rule the world or, or at least just this one country of ours. You see, it is a majority of the people in this country who do not participate in the process. And while the process has proven itself to be perfect, it does require the participation of all the people to realize that perfection. Now, there is a million reasons why people don't vote or otherwise participate in the hard work of preserving this republic. And I'm not going to dignify any of those reasons by listing them. You know what they are, and you know they're all lame. So if you're out there making money and providing for your family... Well, then you're taking advantage of the advantages that these laws allow. And you are then duty-bound to do the necessary work to preserve this republic and its laws. If you, on the other hand, are one of those who choose to focus on a narrow interpretation of a fantasy and decry the evil of this republic's existence, well, then you simply are not facing reality. Such an interpretation cannot be reasonably argued while living in its astounding success that, that surrounds you. But that's the beauty of this perfect system. 
You're allowed to say such things. And people do, usually because there's money in it. But what most fail to realize is that these people that do such a thing are such a minority that it's embarrassing that we give them any play or pay them any mind at all. Their numbers are so small that they are, are virtually insignificant. I mean, no one really believes the system is evil. And it doesn't take much twisting to convince a small percentage of the population who will always believe in the worst of everything. And these people, they'll always be there. There will always be extreme voices on both extremes that instigate these feelings. And it's almost always because they can fundraise off of the dissension as they appeal to the lowest common denominator in society. And it's also because it's not illegal to be wrong. There is a clear-cut difference between right and wrong that can be determined with absolute certainty by simply accepting the reality of the outcomes. And the outcomes that are a result of these insignificant minorities who wish to diminish the success of a representative republic can only do so because a majority fails to stand up and be counted. And the only reason these disastrous policies continue to exist is because the majority fails to step up and speak up and let their overwhelming presence be felt. These minorities rule because the majority is a no-show. You see, you just can't give in to complacency or conspiracy. You need to step up and do your part to preserve this republic if you hope to continue to reap its benefits. Or you can take a pass and let it turn into something else, something that's already happening. Someone way wittier than me once said that if you want to discredit liberal policy, all you need to do is enact it. Now, I know I just picked a fight with liberals, but it's because this liberal policies that you continue to vote for year after year when you vote exclusively Democrat are crashing this republic. And that's not a matter of opinion. It's evidence of their failures. It lies in the streets of these drug-infested and poverty-ridden towns that have been ruled by Democrats for nearly a century. Now, I spend many days a year in the city of San Francisco. I walk those streets for miles every week in the execution of my business. Now, I step over and around the results of liberal policies in action, and it's unbearable. That's not an opinion. It's not secondhand information. I can promise you the conditions in the streets of San Francisco are way worse than anything you've seen on TV or could possibly imagine. No civilized man or woman on this planet should be allowed to openly perpetrate crime or shit in the city streets with complete immunity. I mean, that's just some basic human civility stuff. There is nothing human or civil or compassionate in the kind of things that exist in this town that I love. It's a disgrace that as a result of liberal policy and groupthink and action, there is no other reason. There are very specific people who enact very specific laws that are destroying our great cities from within. Laws that give people free money for drugs or decriminalize crime or otherwise enable government-funded helplessness. There is no mistaking the fact that this is a creation of liberals who continue to vote Democrat. Because there's not a single conservative around when any of these laws were passed. And anyone who would vote for the kind of people who would support the kind of laws that result in this level of decay in society are complicit in this human disaster. But it's not just San Francisco. It's Los Angeles. It's Chicago and Philly and St. Louis and Portland, D.C., Detroit, it's Seattle, and so many other major populated areas that are ruled by the people that liberals vote for. See, all these cities, they have two things in common, desperation and Democrats. Okay, it's, it's important now that I, I make the distinction between liberals and Democrats, because most reasonably thinking people are liberal, even though they might vote conservative. See, we're all liberal in the true sense of the word, in that we all want liberty and freedom and thought of action, and we all want a lawful society. 
We just all need to get on the same page of reality and truthfully accept the facts of these failed liberal policies and stop voting for the people who continue to implement them. You, you see the, the misery and lawlessness and the private exist in these one great cities. We have to stop voting for anyone who will continue to support this and start voting for people who will end this. I'm not wrong here. It's Democrats and only Democrats that have created and perpetuate these living conditions. Because I promise you, no Republican in the entire country is in favor of any of this stuff. And I'm not sorry if that sounds partisan. It's just a clear and obvious fact that good liberals are ignoring for, for whatever reason. I implore you to recognize the obvious and, and get off your liberal high horse and join us down here in reality so we can work together to make it right. See, as a result of my unique relationships with large numbers of people of all shapes and sizes in cities from coast to coast for nearly four decades, I am 100% certain that an overwhelming percentage of the people in this country are liberal-thinking conservatives and or responsible-thinking liberals. Our numbers are astronomical. If we could just agree on a very narrow set of changes, we can begin to fix it all. And we can do it all in one election cycle. We are the majority, even though we cannot agree on the current state of political affairs, but we're also smart enough to know that things can be changed. And as soon as we stop giving airtime to a fraction of 1% of the population that keeps us at odds with one another and recognize that the only reason we hear these loud voices is because there's money to be made, not due to the validity of their arguments. The radical fringes that exist on the fringes that do not represent the majority. I know that because I know the majority. I live and work amongst them, and I have done so for many, many years. The majority, we ain't having any of these social or fiscal failures that are destroying our great cities. The problem is that we either don't vote or continue to vote for the stuff that so clearly is not working, as long as it doesn't show up in my neighborhood. But now it is. It is showing up in your neighborhood, that is. And if you keep ignoring the problem and keep voting Democrat, it will soon be everywhere. I will never give up on my belief in the resolve of the American people to stand together when necessary and to disregard our political differences of opinion and do what we know to be right. And the only way to do that is to get involved or, or at very least show up at the polls for your voice to be heard and to demonstrate our political strength. Reasonable people from both parties willing to let go of previous alliances to form a new supermajority, a majority who just want to make it right and to keep this republic. This is Eric Corey. Thank you for listening.